Uh, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. All right. Here we are again. Uh, talking today about Steven Pinker. So, Steven Pinker is a guy who, he's a, a psychologist, and he's written a number of books. The most recent one is called Enlightenment Now, and it's kind of a defense of enlightenment values, quote-unquote. And uh, there's an interview in the New York Times in, in which he says the main point of enlightenment now is there's a coherent alternative to religious, nationalist, and reactionary movements, namely the ideals of the enlightenment, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. The enlightenment, moreover, worked. We live longer, healthier, healthier, safer, wealthier, freer, more peaceful, more stimulating lives than those who came before us. And by we, I don't just mean we in the West, this progress is encompassing the world. So he's a kind of very optimistic guy who thinks that, you know, there's just too much complaining about the state of, um, you know, society as a whole like th if you look in if you look below the surface things are doing things are good we did it yeah good job us we did <laughs> pat ourselves on the back yes so why should we care about this guy uh steven pinker what uh what makes us concerned with his views do you think well so for one thing he's like this is a, an argument that's been going on for a long time back many hundreds of years and also he's kind of representative of a, what seems like a sort of burgeoning new intellectual tradition especially on the sort of center right to far right um, people like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson who are now calling themselves classical liberals that what we need to do is return to the values of the you know 1700s 1600s where the pure, true, uh, you know, wisdom is to be found. And um, that's all we need to do to create a, to create, you know, to create a good society. All we need to do basically is to recognize that we already have one, that all your problems are illusions, more or less. It's like the fancy version of stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Everything's fine. Yes, yes, yes. And I guess the, fir the first thing that, to you know, before we get into his, like, more ideas in more serious ways, speaking of illusions, to bring up a book called The Great Illusion by Norman uh, Engel, I believe it's called, and an, an, uh, a British guy, which is a book that was published in, uh, in 1909 and then again in 19... 10 um and just reading from wikipedia here uh engel's primary primary thesis was in the words of historian james joel that quote the economic cost of war was so great that no one could possibly hope to gain by starting a war the consequences of which would be so disastrous for that reason a general european war was very unlikely to start and if it did it would not last long well, that seems about spot on to me. <laughs> yes, right. And and so, you know, uh, in modern times, you know, for, as an initial matter, you look at the United States, Pinker talks about longer lifespan. Well, the United States lifespan has actually declined for two years straight, um, which is, uh, you know, nearly unprecedented. It only happened a couple of times before. And it's driven by suicide and drug abuse, people dying of opioid overdoses. And so, like, the idea that on a first glance that there's, like, absolutely nothing to worry about is kind of ridiculous. And um, secondly, uh, 
just like like it certainly seems unlikely that there that there is a uh a big like great power war that that is in the cards that certainly seems hard to imagine but on the other hand if it does happen like you could just snuff out all of human life in a matter of hours so you know like like it's kind of teetering on the edge of uh very serious destruction and even if we discount the pop- the possibility of of great power wars there's also climate change which is to a large degree driven by these sort of progressive forces that pinker is celebrating here um you know the rise of capitalism economic productivity greater use of energy and so on and so forth and Therefore, it places a kind of large obstacle into trying to change these, um, you know, energy systems. And and finally, as a sort of initial comment on the Pinker thesis, um, you know, he's he makes a lot of historical charts about you know looking at oh life expectancy has improved a lot compared to, you know, French peasants in the 1340s. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, that's true. You know, you, you there's no more uh, great epidemics of the Black Death. But on the other hand, that doesn't really speak to what people are actually concerned about, which is the difference between current reality and the actual possibility of, you know, what could happen if you're a Greek person and you're I am. living uh, in a country which has had 20 plus percent unemployment for going on a decade for quite literally no reason at all. Uh, to think about French peasants from 700 years ago is really not that comforting. You know, you, like I've it, tried to comfort my relatives that way. It did not work. I don't know. I it. Uh, I read the Steven Pinker book. I tried to explain how much better their suffering was in comparison to the 14th century peasants. And uh, I don't know. I guess they're irrational. The uh, the reasonable argument did not convey what it meant. I, I just they didn't see the, the point. I'm sorry. It didn't work. I guess the Greeks are irrational. What are you, yeah. you going to do? Barbarians. Yes. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> that's a nice irony there. <laughs> of course, you know the root of the word barbarian, right? Isn't it that... Uh, if you don't speak they, Greek. Yeah, you bar, you, you bar, sound like bar, 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 because <laughs> you don't speak Greek. You know, these idiots don't speak Greek. They're barbarians. Yeah. Uh, so well done, well played, my friend. Um, yes, so there is this um, failure of... Uh, Pinker's reasonable, rational, scientific-based argument to convince some large swaths of the world, whole nation states, uh, people, like you said, suffering from um, opioid um, epidemic. A lot of people uh, weren't invited to the march to progress, apparently. And um, so, you know, one question I I have for you is why is this neat, clean... Um, beautiful vision of uh, progress based on reason and science um, able to just kind of paper over all these contemporary problems from climate change um, to gross inequality. What do, what do you think is the, uh, I don't know, the, the fund- fundamental mistake that is at work here that blinds the Steven Pinkers of the world to... Uh, how incomplete his theory is for um, for both philosophical and empirical and political purposes, I guess. Yeah, so we're going to get into Rousseau, but to my mind, from a kind of like semi-informed perspective, the the big the big mistake that Pinker is making is sort of looking at these various trends and how they are associated with the promulgation of doctrines based on science and reason and concluding that one must have been caused by the other. But in reality, you know, a great deal of those benefits have been the product of people 
fighting like cats in a sack over just grotesque exploitation. So, for example, like here's some charts for uh, example, during the 19th century, American um, average height and life expectancy that declined steadily for the almost the entire century. It didn't bottom out until the 1890s. This is from the uh, new uh, entry in the Oxford History of the United States. It's called The Republic for Which It Stands by Richard White. But he pulls on some, you know, people who basically went and looked up graves and stuff like that to see how, uh, you know, what how pe- how long people lived and how tall they got. You know, t- and tallness being a sort of indicator of, general a proxy uh, if you will. yeah nutrition you know what how how healthy are the lives that people are living and uh he found that there was a a large cost to material progress and at a time when the u.s economy was exploding becoming much bigger building this huge industrial base the average people were being poisoned and ground down and malnourished and living shorter lives uh, with, you know, worse nutrition. And it took concerted action during the progressive era to translate that possibility, as we were saying before, the huge material resources that had been developed during the 19th century into actual, you know, uh, working programs that that did benefit that realized that potential, and so the idea that you can just sort of sit on your heels and, uh, you know, let reason and progress just do everything for you is is dumb and dangerous and dangerous because it's the automatic model of politics, right? It's it's just. Like let's let's let the technocrats adjust their uh, you know computers and uh, policy will perfectly march everyone towards progress um, without any struggle, any actual ideology, norms, contestation, uh, values. Because and here's the other part of it, right? Is this is a substitute for uh, values or vision for a particular type of. Um, society or the ways in which we're supposed to live together. This is uh, science and reason in this, um, in this system are meant to be um, all you need, right? They're, they're, they're above and beyond any actual um, contestation and politically that needs to be done, right? So if you have the technocrats running everything, um, then you don't have to have values. You can just have facts, and that's, I think, a da- talk about a great illusion. That's a that's a dangerous illusion. Yeah. yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, you could have a society in which all the wealth is owned by one person and every single other person lives a life of just grotesque deprivation and misery. <laughs> and you could have a, a society in which wealth is shared more or less equally and everybody gets a cut and... Um, there's there's you know people live longer and healthier lives is reason going to tell you which one of those is better did you know did you know ryan that if you have one person with a billion dollars and another person with one dollar the mean wealth in that society is 500 million dollars that is amazing that is yeah that's a for society of two that is a phenomenal deal for everyone that's right that's right statistics that's all you need. Can't argue with that. <laughs> um, and yet this is really popular, isn't it? I, I'm sure in part, right? Because it's a seductive promise. You have, I, I teach college students for a living, right? And it, if I had a nickel for every time a college student, most of whom are not poli-sci majors, let's be honest. They're, they're, they're not, the, the poli-sci majors like argument, like contestation, like... Um, figuring out the philosophical roots of, of these things. But uh, the other students are just taking the class for a G or whatnot. They, they will say things like, I just, I don't want conflict. Can you can just, you know, let's not talk about this. And right, the, the, the seductive offer here is, oh, good, everyone 
can just get along and defer to this objective reality of facts and science and reason, and no one has to, you know, bother about each other's opinions anymore because the experts will, will lead us uh, to salvation, uh, which is somewhat humorous in light of uh, all the failures of quote-unquote meritocracy in the last couple decades, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a profoundly impossible way to think about both politics and moral reasoning in general. Right. The idea you can abstract these difficult questions of ideological priority into a sort of depoliticized technocracy, which will make value-neutral judgments. Yes. Value-neutral judgments about what thing is best. Exactly. That is a... That is a self-contradictory statement. Absolutely. Now, once you offer best or, or uh, anything that's normative in that way, you are um, you're doing some kind of sorting, some kind of judgment that has to be based on uh, a philosophy or ideology that is outside of anything objective. Whereas, you know, the Enlightenment, broadly speaking. So again, Pinker is kind of picking and choosing his enlightenment thinkers. He's, ignore yes. he's ignoring the skeptics like Hume, and he's, you know, going with Kant and certain understandings of Kant and the ways in which enlightenment is this beautiful march towards progress. So he's, he's of course, reducing a very complex um, genealogy of, of ideas. But what his offer is, and what many people are, are being uh, seduced by, is uh, what is often referred to as this fact-value dichotomy. Right over here, and it's like a Venn diagram. Over here, the circle are facts. Over here are values, and never the twain shall meet. Right, except as many different traditions from the right and the left have shown, this is nonsense. And what you have, therefore, is someone, let's say, oh, I don't know, Hillary Clinton and all the neoliberals, who are very happy to not take any moral stance on hardly anything, because. Their morality, their politics, is all supported by uh, charts and graphs and and uh, you know the technocracy that they say they're so experienced in. Um, but that doesn't move people, and it also doesn't work for people once you're in government because someone always wins, right? Yes. Power, power, and ideology do not just vanish under this system of of uh, you know technocracy, right? No, no. And I mean, and this this is the the great sin of the technocrats is that 100% of the time they have a moral ideology and oftentimes they are utterly fanatical about it. But what but they pretend as if they don't, you know, th this is a story you see over and over again with the uh, Eurocrats negotiating with the Greek government right. is that they say this is a non-political thing which we are doing which is causing a bank run in your country in order to disguise the fact that the bailout we gave you went directly into french and german banks yes and it's just like a it's just a lie you know i i remember listening to vero Fakis talk about um this notion from the the, the german finance minister uh schäuble how do, how do you pronounce his name Schäuble, Schäuble, I, I think Something I like could that. be wrong. Uh, call in our German listeners, please tell us the actual. Uh, so he he basically said, uh, you know, democratic elections and politics are fine as long as they don't change the economic policy. Yeah, yeah. literally. So in other words, have all the politics you want unless it actually changes the power structure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Virofakis said, so these quote unquote democratic processes are just a fig leaf for oligarchy. Yeah, that's right. The the um and and that in in turn getting someone off track here, but it goes to demonstrate that that you know you talk about um you know the technocracy of the European Central Bank and the way that that people have sort of camouflaged their ideology. But that ideology is on the part of Schäuble and you know, the rest of those guys is as much directed against the working class of Germany right. as it is against Greece. Absolutely. So it's a, it's an international project of, 
of suppressing the working class and putting the property rights beyond the reach of democratic institutions. You know, somebody should come along and say something, I don't know, like like the workers of the world, it seems like have a lot in common. I feel like the workers <laughs> of the world should unite. It just seems like what you're saying is that they have more in common and, and their interests are aligned. I don't know. I, maybe, 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 yeah. You're write, you yeah. should write a book on that. You, you know where that's even more true? Yeah. Is China. Ah. China, you know, like in Germany, even after all this neoliberalism, workers are doing pretty well, you know. Uh, Labor aristocracy, have you heard of this? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, despite the best wishes of Schäuble, German workers are doing all right. Exactly. But in China, man, you know, the, the level of inequality in China is much worse than it is in the United States. And the, the share of the economy that goes to workers is worse. And... Um, this is causing a lot of problems in terms of China's national economy because they're they're uh, configured now basically to just do mass exports, mainly to the United States, also Europe. Um, and that's sort of part of the traditional uh, way that economies develop. Uh, but as countries become more rich and China is... A, pretty solidly middle-income country now eventually they uh you know all evolve a sort of internal market a middle class basically with broad purchasing power and that is not okay with the communist elite which wants to hog all the money for itself basically and so you know they've been kind of like papering over that crack and basically kind of you know victimizing their own working class while at the same time victimizing the working class of developed countries who you know have to compete with these um underpaid you know chinese laborers but at any rate getting uh quite off topic now no i I think that's absolutely related I, i i look at all the nuance that is being lost in this this picture that pinker and those who agree with him are offering, right? You, you can look in aggregate, look at all these great things in aggregate that are happening. Yeah. And as so many uh, other conversations about, say, capitalism um, result in is there's this alighting of the distribution or, yeah. you know, like tell that to the poor people jumping out of the buildings in China, the factories, you know, because of the working conditions. Um, there's this kind of erasure of the individual's and the classes of people that are uh, being exploited to, to create. I mean, look, we agree, and Marx would even have agreed, that capitalism is amazing at producing wealth. I mean, it's amazing at producing wealth, right? Because the people that need to feed themselves and clothe themselves and have shelter, right, are at the whims of the capitalists who own the capacity to give them the ability to pay for those things. So those capitalists can make them work themselves to death, Right. Hey, guess what? That produces all that wealth. (laughs) If you have the the ability to make all these people crack the whip, quite literally, like as a form of slavery in a different guise, crack the whip on all these people to make them produce, 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 produce. Yes. In aggregate, that's going to create a tremendous amount of stuff and, and, and wealth and technology. Right. But that has nothing to do with the resulting inequality and distribution of the wealth and the ways in which people's lives get, uh, terribly oppressed through that system yeah right and that you know this goes to how like people talk about free trade as if it was some kind of you know globalization is a a process that just has to happen and there's no getting around it um and what you know what happened was the you know, the manufacturing class of the United States was to a great degree sacrificed to cheaper competitors in, uh, you know, the, the developing world, especially China. Right. And um, the, what that elides, as you say, is the distribution of those those benefits. So and the suffering, who, the distribution of yes. suffering too. So who who is benefiting from this this new free trade regime? Well, Chinese workers to some fairly limited extent, uh, because you know they are getting jobs. The jobs pay you know like 
increasingly better, you know, like wages are going up in China and they have been over the last 20 years. Uh, but who is really collecting the big money? It's the executives of the Chinese companies and the executives of the American companies uh, who really have more in common with each other than they do with their own national, like, um, citizenry. you know, yeah, yeah citizenry yep. or even their own workers. Yep. Um, and you could easily imagine a different sort of a globalization in which the people making the sacrifice were the executive class. You know, where where like if there, you know, we agree that that there's some sacrifice had to be made in the 1990s or whatever to deal with to to, you know, make these companies more streamlined. You could say, well, the you know, executive salaries are going down, you know, people got to take a haircut. But instead, it was the opposite. You know, pe- people made money. They inc- increased their salary by firing well-paid American workers and hiring cheap uh, workers overseas. Um, and that was a political decision. There was nothing inevitable about that. It was it was just how the, you know, process of decision-making went, went forward. Yeah, that's the other illusion, is that there is just this objective, automatic, mechanized system of decision-making that doesn't involve political choice. Uh, so, you know, when the global economy tanked in 2008 because a bunch of jerks gambled with the global wealth and, you know, these ridiculous gambling schemes, um, yeah, the only thing automatically that would happen is that we socialize those losses, of course, and the government bails out the bankers. And, you know, all the people with the underwater mortgages, they had to, of course, suffer the consequences of the decisions made by others, by the elites with the power. Like, there's no other option for how that could have gone, right? Right? I mean, I, I just logically, what what other possible way could, could society have dealt with that? Such, I mean, I can't even, can you think of it? I can't even think of an alternative, really. No, I can't. Oh, wait, it's just coming to me. Um, we could have just wiped out all the debt from the actual workers and people who were underwater because of the gambling of these elites and powerful institutions and, you know, nationalize the banks. We, so there were, it turns out, other choices politically we could have made that maybe would have alleviated lots of suffering. Yes. Why didn't science and reason tell us to do that? I'm very confused. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, perhaps it was they forgot to correct for something. There was a <laughs> they didn't carry the the one in the yeah, yeah. formula. <laughs> so let's talk about Rousseau. Yes, good transition, and and we won't today at least be talking about the second discourse of Rousseau on the origins of inequality, which also links very well to our discussion there. Um, but we will be discussing Jean-Jacques Rousseau's first discourse, which uh, is a discourse on the sciences and the arts um, that does also very well respond to some of these enlightenment ideas of progress and inevitability and these false idols, according to Rousseau, of reason and science. Um, So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? Uh, Famous political philosopher, uh, Swiss actually, but... Yeah, I don't know if you I know. I thought he was French. Yeah, yeah, everyone thinks that. Everyone thinks that. No, he's from Geneva. Mm. And um, maybe he did live in France for, for a good long bit and was friends with Diderot and um, actually was very uh, challenged at making friendships, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, Hobbes, of course, has this terribly negative, cynical uh, view of human nature, but he was apparently a, a very amiable guy that everyone loved. <laughs> But Ru- I can believe R- that. Rousseau basically uh, pissed everyone off. <laughs> and, and I can also believe yes, that. Yes, uh, d- despite his rosy view of human nature. So it's a bit of, uh, bit of fun uh, biography. But Jean-Roc Rousseau was uh, born in 1712. He is uh, one of the counter-enlightenment thinkers who is renowned for giving rise later on to um, romanticism, uh, to the transcendentalism, uh, I like to say that he is kind of one of the forebears of the hippie commune, right? A, a lot yeah. of hippies owe, owe their uh, philosophy and ideology to Rousseau. He 
is known for a number of works from uh, Emil on education, his confessions, um, but his political philosophy is really uh, not reduced to, but mainly in his first two discourses in the social contract, which is kind of a response to the first two discourses. Um, but back in the day, they liked to have essay contests. And so the, um, the first discourse is a response to an essay contest, right? Whose question is, has the restoration of the sciences and the arts contributed to the purification of mores or to their corruption, right? And, uh, and he won this essay contest despite living in a time where the expected answer is, of course. Uh, you know, this is put on by Dijon, the academic uh, institution, where um, everyone was, was just patting each other on the back for how brilliant they were and how the arts and sciences were, uh, as, you know, the Enlightenment uh, was wont to do. It was um, like Aspen Ideas. Yes, yes. This was, this was the uh, Davos and the, and the TED Talks at Aspen of the day, right? This was the... Um, the intellectual elite um, bragging to each other about how they were going to save the world, how amazing their ideas are, and so forth. So, um, so 1750 is when he answers this. And he basically says, not only do the arts and sciences not lead to the purification of mores, right? And to um, some kind of um, moral... So not just a march of progress scientifically, but morally, right? Some perfectibility of the human spirit. But in fact, everything that is corrupted in us comes indeed from basically academia, from these, these yeah. notions that come from these enlightenment virtues. So I, w- yeah. what, what were some of your first uh, thoughts reading this, um, this first discourse here? Well, that's, I mean... The reason I thought of Steven Pinker is because Rousseau is more or less directed, directing his polemic straight at people like Steven Pinker. What, when was this written? The 1750. 1750, yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we've been to a great degree chasing our tail in, uh, you know, political philosophy and political argumentation for. Uh, well over, you know, nearly 300 years, I guess. Um, yeah, so how how does he pick apart this argument? So he is, in a way, anachronistically responding to Steven Pinker and um, going against the tide of his day uh, by challenging some fundamental assumptions that we were trying to do a bit in the, in the Pinker discussion. But Yeah. And he, well, so one thing he... A sort of uh, continual theme is how the rise of science and, you know, material progress has given rise to great luxury and great, therefore, dissipation and weakness to how basically modernity and and economic progress makes people soft and vulnerable and um you know your kind of edward gibbon type of argument that <laughs> yeah. that you know these these city dwelling book reading uh voluptuous luxurious <laughs> uh societies are just doomed to be conquered by the mongols or whoever you know these simple like hard bitten kind of warrior peoples um and certainly Rousseau had admiration for, say, ancient Sparta. Yes. Right? Yes, he did. Uh, it was a bit uncomfortable, you know, Sparta being more or less kind of fascist society. Yeah, so that's true. Um, but what in his critique rings true to me that's interesting is his juxtaposition of this kind of ideal as against people, he says, who are not because a false reading of Rousseau would be to say that he doesn't value education. Right. He actually loves Socrates, but 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 he notes that Socrates, the founder of philosophy in some ways, in Western civilization, at least, is someone who didn't write anything down. You know why? Because he didn't want to he didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about having lasting works that people would be thinking about him for ages and ages for. 
right? He cared about actually seeking the good, the true, and the beautiful. Whereas this is the juxtaposition that matters, right? Just as Pinker undoubtedly loves being on the New York Times bestseller list, right? Like, let's keep in mind that Steven Pinker is famous. We're talking about him not because of his actual expertise in, in, in what he was trained in, yeah, right? which is psychology. Yes, but for like his quote unquote public intellectual discussions of things that he was not trained in, right? But he yeah. he is popular and his reputation is great. And that is the thing that Rousseau thinks drives all kinds of terribleness, right? This, this root uh, drive to be um, applauded by others. Basically, we... Rousseau says, posit ideas not for the truth we think they actually uncover. So so the model that Pinker is pushing is this objective search for truth, meaning, value, and so forth. But the reality, says Rousseau, is that people write all kinds of things just to be applauded for how brilliant they are. It's a performance, right? And we care about... Uh, things like politeness and manners and reputation, none of which have any authentic root, right, in who we are or should be, but are these these ways of valuing each other as against other people and putting down others, right? Um, and- yeah, and and that, uh, you know, in particular, you know, you're talking about an essay contest here put on by some, no doubt, very well-funded sort of institute, and, um, you know, this is when the sort of industrial revolution is kind of very for, for sort of first glimmerings of it are starting to show up. And, you know, what's what manner of institution was that type of, you know, if you're a, a draper or a goldsmith or or a, uh, you know, a textile manufacturer like if you're if you're one of those you know developing bourgeois people that uh sort of sets the taste of society and decides what's uh polite and what's reasonable and what's uh you know the the dignified way to behave that type of business is you have like a hundred people working for you they make you know like 20 percent of the proceeds of the business in their wages and you take home the other 80 percent just just grotesque inequality and then you know people go out and they hire a uh, intellectuals to say that this is the best of all possible worlds and this institute you know coke industries or whatever is the um you know, this is the only way that things can be, and to and to behave morally is to is to never interfere with my money stream. It'd be so uncivil of you. It, yes. it would be both ignorant and uncivil of you to challenge that. Yeah, haven't you heard about thirteenth-century peasants? And things were so bad back then. And we can see today, right, when all the outrage of the Enlightenment classical liberal. Uh, ideologue actually today they lose their minds when somebody like charles murray is uh shouted down because how how uncivil how uncivil right and and to to challenge the status quo goes against this norm this norm that was created by those in power and and so and so that's again kind of this um unmasking of the ideology and power that is so well supported by these illusions of objectivity and civility and all that goes along with with the enlightenment uh, values they purport to yeah and i think that this this skepticism of reason and progress um you know so this is 1750 so you know before the real rise of the of britain as the you know, preeminent industrial and world power. And Britain is a is a society that is like, I mean, this is the Enlightenment tradition par excellence, you know. Um, they, you know, following all these precepts from Adam Smith, John Locke, 
and uh, the cutting edge sort of moral philosophy of the day. And what happened when that um, economic might was was brought in to a single country and the UK got a, a very wide head start on the rest of the world? Well, they they dominated everyone, to, like probably to a greater extent than any country has ever dominated the world before or since. You know, they they had this um, advantage and they used it to their own selfish interest. Um, and this gets to something you mentioned before, that the, the difference between, you know, moral reason and just rationalization, because what what happens when you know, you're building an empire in India and, uh, you know, forcing open China by, you know, gunboat diplomacy and conquering Africa is that people come up with a lot of bullshit theories about how these are inherently inferior peoples and they just can't be trusted with their own, uh, you know, government. And so we need to come in and uh, just by coincidence, uh, force them to buy all of our textile imports and throw everyone out of work. And oh no, there's a famine now, but that's uh, just the price of progress. No, exactly. And that's a very important point because the corollary of the enlightened ones is that there are unenlightened ones, right? We have to civilize the savages. It's for their own good. In fact, colonization and all these terrors were you know, essentially we're doing people a favor by introducing them to our right reason and so forth. So our exploitation is actually now simply altruism, really. The spreading of uh, the proper philosophy and civilization that uh, that they wouldn't have encountered otherwise. Right? That's, That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. Doing things like uh, when King Leopold made the uh, Congo Free State to say that if you didn't bring in enough... Uh, uh, rubber from the rubber plantation, then they would cut your hands off. Yes, yes. Uh, this this is the you know civilization in progress. It's killing half the population of the Congo Basin in your sort of madcap scheme to you know just like extract as much wealth as possible. Well, and you know, there's a reason that this is actually ideology in its purest form because it manages. Um, under the guise of unbiased, objective science and reason to allow people in, in this global capitalist form that we're in to ignore vast amounts of suffering as just inevitable consequences of the march towards progress. I mean, this is the way it goes. And for a while, especially in, in this country, you had a conservatism that justified great inequality with this promise of mobility. You too, one day can be, yeah. can be rich and wealthy and just move up, but you have to just, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and participate in this system that, um, you know, was designed through, and this is the connection between reason, technocracy and capitalism, right? We've got this beautiful system. You just, you know, pay attention to what you're supposed to do and you too will achieve greatness. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, has not proved a reliable narrative anymore. No, no. And in part, we have Trump because of the, the vast failures on both the right and the, the left sides, of the political aisle to, um, to tell that story with any kind of uh, convincing. <laughs> um, yeah. To keep telling that story I've long past its sell by date, you know, that, that, that all, all we need to do is trust in the automatic process of, uh, modernization and globalization and that though we'll get the benefits of growth and it just became ludicrous to the and totally non-convincing to the average person so now we're back to socialism or barbarism <laughs> right yeah and uh and yet you have the pinkers of the world trying to fight against it and i think the appeal is to say you know trump is the result of you not adhering to this enlightenment view of things um but that tribalism is popular because actually this enlightenment ideology and narrative has failed so miserably, right? I, it seems incredible to me that even, you know, several years back when, say, Chris Hayes wrote Twilight of the Elites and all these documented cases of the failures of quote unquote meritocracy, 
uh, you still have these people trying to use charts and data to convince suffering people that actually everything is fine. And, uh, you know, it's good to get away from Trump and proto-fascism and, you know, blaming groups of people being racist, misogynist, xenophobic, and so forth. But the reason that, in part, those movements are gaining power is because the Steven Pinkers of the world need to be pushed aside and not the alternative because they do not end up winning that battle of ideas, right? Yeah, I mean, in it's it's kind of ironic, you know, like like this is a very kind of you know, what would have been called a like a kind of cargo cult behavior, you know, to where one's political tradition is not is has, it went down to a game show clown and, and you know who has admitted to sexual assault on tape you know if it, if it, there was any candidate of steven pinkerism it was hillary clinton Absolutely. you know america is already great just stop whining um and rather than try to critically investigate the, the 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 kind of you know last generation or two of you know the west uh the global economy and and really try to suss out you know what are the what are the good points what are the bad points um where might we be doing better you know what are our problems He's basically just sticking his fingers in his ears and saying everything is good yes. and, you know, la, 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 la. There's no problems here. Uh, and if everyone would just realize that, um, you know, read my charts, then you would understand that, that what seems like problems are not problems. And that is every bit as irrational as the medieval peasant you know, who's like, uh, you know, putting a piece of communion wafer on the statue of the Virgin Mary before going out to plant the wheat seeds for this for the, you know, that year's harvest. Right. Like it's not this is a knee jerk, uh, reactive, defensive psychology and not an a serious intellectual investigation of the state of things, you know, and it, it, it couldn't, you know, it could be more obvious that that's what's going on. And it's just, it's, it is Dr. Pangloss once again. That's right. Now it's, it's a technocratic version of let them eat cake. Yeah. Because look at the data, the chart, these charts look amazing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, the reason says Rousseau, I don't know if you, you caught this near the end, is in a way, I think, hitting on um, some of the things that Trump voters must have felt. Um, and I think there were some Trump slash Bernie supporters who would have gone for either of those candidates had they yeah. been right. And to be fair, Bernie supporters voted for Hillary, I think, like 90 percent, something like that. But I think a number of people who ended up voting for Trump might have voted for Bernie had he been running on the other side. Yeah, there were a number, uh, some, I think, about 8 million people who went from Obama to Trump yes. voters. And uh, those generally tended to be more Bernie-style voters. Not uh, not that many of them, but they, they do, as a kind of historical coincidence, happen to be concentrated in very... Uh, key states like Michigan, yes. Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. I think it's related to the Rousseau piece here in the first discourse, in part because he's talking about how self-satisfied these elites who think that they're educated in ways that the, the rabble are not and know better, how you can see how clearly these people aren't necessarily the paragons of virtue and morality, right? Yes. And, and Rousseau is like, you know, the country bumpkin 
very likely has a more pure soul than these corrupt elites who are patting themselves on the back for all of their advances in knowledge. And there is some of that anti-elitist um, sentiment in the Trump and, and some Bernie supporters as well, who look at the failures of technocracy and meritocracy and all these same uh, enlightenment style technocrats leading an economy and a, and a political system right to these terrible consequences for so many working people yeah that they just reject wholesale all the neoliberals right and all those promises that they keep making and and it's obvious why the kind of appeal that trump was able to to make um is in juxtaposition to that right yes you 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 have a guy i mean if that if if Trump was running on one thing, it, it was anti-establishment in all of its very, you know, for, for, for better and worse, you know, because it, it was it was like, you know, the, the, the current ruling class has messed everything up. They sold us out to trade deals. Um, you know, China is ruining us. Under me, everyone's going to have a high paying manufacturing job. But it was also like racial scapegoating you know that 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 type of thing is very denigrated amongst the elite class nowadays for you know completely legitimate reasons but you know i think that even that tends to demonstrate that if you have that's that sort of politics associated with uh a failed status quo then you're going to open the door to really dark human impulses well, absolutely. But also the left critiques the neoliberals for, say, emphasizing politeness and tolerance of discussion and language policing instead of actually addressing the racial inequality, right, that stems from capitalism and its structures. Uh, it's more important to the neoliberals and the liberals that care about, right, their um, civility and uh, language um, to say the right thing instead of do the right thing. And Rousseau is really, really focused about this distinction between academia, which he says produces those who care about what they write and how to say things well, rather than the virtue of action, of people actually doing good things and being people worthy of modeling your life on. That's his big distinction that he's saying. You know, There's this reputation built on words and show and performance, and then there's actual goodness, and there seems to be this conflation. Right. And, and so that seems to me so connected to this notion that if you use the right words about people, then that then we've almost like eliminated all of uh, the oppression caused by slavery, racism, Jim Crow. Right. Like, uh, hey, look, Obama became president. Yeah. Racism's over. Right. And and and. You know, obviously that that doesn't, you know, language is important sure. and it's it's important not to, you know, use racial slurs and so forth but at the same time you know when people go home at the end of the day uh material conditions that they have what are their wages what is their access to health care um all that matters a lot and so you you certainly need the both of those things you know you 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 have to address like the sort of the broader culture and you know people's material deprivation at the same time and what you know i think that there's a lot of stuff in like there's a lot to admire in the way that people have sort of brought in you know representation politics and stuff new james bond's going to be black it's like okay that's that's great that's fine um but i think at its worst at its most cynical that type of stuff is deployed as a replacement for class politics and that i think is a way that 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 is a thing that it it really inspires a lot of cynicism and even kind of fits right in with some of the racial scapegoating that people like you know Trump put in to be the the like this is all a fraud that you're putting forward just so that the people at the very top who are now going to just be somewhat more diverse than they were before are going to keep stomping on the workers and shipping your jobs to Mexico or whatever and um yeah writing a book about actually it's all fine you gormless rubes is really not going to convince anybody well and it occurs to me that there is this um parallel between uh centrist liberalism that values the symbolic victories 
uh, of identity politics um, rather than the material changes in the lives of, say, actual um, people of color or women. And how that, as you say, can be a substitute for the real progress that's necessary. On the same um, point, Trump and the dog whistles and the scapegoating seems to me also a way to placate people who are really very often suffering materially from capitalism and from any number of things by satisfying them emotionally and allowing them to blame a group and feel at least that they're um, being heard and their voice is being heard in a certain way and a group is being blamed and maybe even we're deporting the hell out of a whole number of people, which doesn't actually help the material conditions of the Trump voter, but makes the Trump voter feel a little less unequal in suffering, maybe. A little more like, hey, the people that I really want to blame for my conditions are getting theirs. And both of these things, just like the new James Bond being African-American, or actually he's British, right? African? Yes, yes, I believe so. Uh, Yeah, or, 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 you know, the first black president. These symbolic victories are, again, placating in lieu of the real material conditions being changed. And, And so those two parties really work together as against true liberatory politics. Um, and that's a shame. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, bit un, a bit unfortunate. You know, you look at history and, you know, people like to talk about how the New, the new Deal was, had a lot of compromises with racism because Southern Democrats were, uh, you know, they were Jim Crow Democrats and they were a key part of the coalition in those days. But at the same time, um, you know, you look at the material, you know, outcomes of the black population during the New Deal period, life expectancy converged strongly with the white population. Um, You know, the wealth gap closed pretty significantly, Uh, you know, despite making those compromises, which were kind of eroded over time, culminating in the Civil Rights Act, like even a pretty bad class politics that was shot through with a lot of terrible like carve outs uh, still had enormous positive, uh, you know, impacts on, you know, black Americans, the, the poorest demographic group. And, it's why that you know from from the 1920s when the when the black population was was i believe fairly evenly split you know republicans were still cruising on the on the legacy of lincoln basically the great emancipator after 1930 32 they shift firmly into the democratic column which you know by the time of the civil rights act it's like nine, basically 90 plus percent uh democrats for you know on up to the present day um and yeah so that you know that 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 type of class politics is missing you know so obviously missing from to 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 solve the type of thing like to address the kind of questions that and problems that people identify in modern society and it's a tough thing to i mean I don't want to make the mistake of a Steven Pinker where cold objective facts can conquer everyone's uh, ideology. But, uh, you know, you wrote about how Obama presided over the greatest deprivation of wealth amongst African-Americans in this country. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was like, uh, you, know, you know, one of the great epochs of wealth, black wealth destruction, you know, akin to like contract lending after the, after the war, um, just devastation of the black middle class. But when you, you know, reckoning with that reality, it's talk about how convenient cognitive dissonance would be because it is not to undermine this symbolism, uh, you know, undeniably true that so many African-Americans children, adults, what have you, were inspired, moved, felt, heard, and represented by the first African-American president um, being elected. Like, that's indisputably valuable in a real, tangible way. It's not just BS, you know. Um, 
so talk about Schoedenfrauda, you know, the, the feeling that on the one hand, this is a tremendous victory. On the other hand, what you just cited is also true. And, um, and the feeling like you have to choose, um, between those is not, doesn't seem fair, right? It seems like you should be able to have it all. But when you have, um, the cynical use of identity politics, um, by both sides, it is, it's easy to forget, um, about those material conditions and, and their fundamental import, right? Yes. It, it, uh, you know, I, I think that what, what, I guess we're somewhat straying afar from Rousseau at the, at the moment, mm-hmm. but what American politics is crying out for is a mixture of New Deal class politics with Reconstruction or Civil Rights era racial politics. Um, and, you know, the way to say, like, all, all minorities are here, even the rich ones, because Republicans are racist. And then enough of the poor white people, you know, lower lower class or or even, you know, I mean, anybody who feels class victimized in this country, which is like most people, you know, you you know, you could be upper middle class and still carrying like a half a million dollars in student loans. Um, But just people who are less people who who have more class identity than they have racism. And in that coalition to say that, like, okay, we're bringing all these folks together and then we're going to put through a real solid material program at the same time, I think would be a, a solid, a solid coalition. Absolutely. And, it, and it would not have the, the cracks of the New Deal coalition, which is to say that, that you know, Southern white people are, are insanely racist and so once, you know, if you can ever peel them off from the Democrats, then that's that's the end of it. But at any rate, I'm going to succeed in tying this back to the Rousseau. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you how. Do it. So Trump tapped into a Rousseauian critique of the Enlightenment and of the technocrats, the neoliberals. Right. He tapped in to this correct repulsion at these people offering this this illusion of um not just um, success and greatness that hardly anyone actually experienced, but of the, I mean, talk about the anti-political correct stuff, the revulsion towards these people who acted like they were better than others because they knew the norms of uh, like... They knew the people. They knew the people and they knew, right, the ways in which you're supposed to talk about things, the right terms, uh, you know, the, the language you're supposed to use. Uh, all the the codes and signals, right? This, um, this the smug, yes, elite people who are who are giving secret speeches to Goldman Sachs because, quite frankly, they paid me four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and I would like four hundred fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> yes, and I don't care how it looks. And absolutely, as Rousseau says, these people are corrupt liars. Yes, they are corrupt liars, and. Uh, so many Trump supporters, I think, saw that in the establishment correctly. The yeah. problem is what they didn't see is that Trump, of course, is also a corrupt liar, <laughs> right? He, yeah. Talk about somebody. I mean, Rousseau's critique is about people and the reputation. I mean, he wants to plaster Trump, Trump's name everywhere. Yeah. In, in the, you know, this move uh, back when he tried to, I think, unsuccessfully change the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, um, but they put up the plaque. Right. The literally his name was as big. The letters of his name were as big as the name of the like the embassy. Right. Um, He is all about reputation and narcissism and saying he's the best at everything. He's the most humble too. like patently hilarious, ridiculous statements. So he is also the embodiment of his own version of an anti-elitist elitism that's rooted in a kind of capitalist success story that he told, right? Yeah. And um, those stories that he, when he was in business, he had two priorities. Number one, make as much money as possible by ripping off your suppliers. Number two, have your name 
on the project in gigantic golden letters. And oftentimes number two would interfere with number one <laughs> by, by being very expensive. But yes, a, a sort of moral cretin, you know, of, of out of a, like some kind of pathology textbook. And I mean, literally, if there's one point Rousseau is making is that people want to be applauded. And Trump, more than anyone, cares about the number of people applauding him, saying nice things about him, the size of his crowds. Literally, when he went to the flood disaster areas, right, in Texas and, and, and whatnot, he was commenting on how big the crowds were when he was giving away the necessities for the people that were suffering, right? He was even boasting about the size of the hurricanes. Yes, yes, like this, <laughs> much, these, much these bigger. Biggest, biggest hurricanes in the Atlantic in, in many years. <laughs> He literally wrote that on Twitter. So, of course, Rousseau is fundamentally, a, you know, the most um, one of the one of the best critics of of, of Trumpism, um, which is all the more sad because the people that he um, brings into the fold that support him as as voters have the real needs that Rousseau also identifies um, our neoliberals as not addressing either. So that's the sad part. So if the left that you mentioned could actually be supported. Um, then finally the needs that aren't being met could be met. So I think that might be a nice... That's a good place to stop. Yeah, let's do that. All right, cool.